You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. And the veteran New Zealand journalist who called out mainstream media in 1993 as brain dead, Lindsay Perigo. The atrophy of moral judgment is the characteristic disease of our times. The inability to see evil and the willingness to condone it and call it that and resist it, evil. This insidious wokery. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Gigi Foster is a US-born academic and economist. She's currently a professor of economics at the University of New South Wales. She regularly appears in Australian media, and she's authored two books, The Great COVID Panic of 2021 and Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? came out in September 2022, and she's here to talk about her observations on economic matters across the Tasman, but I think probably at a slightly smaller scale, they, or some of them, will apply here as well. So it'll be really interesting to hear what Gigi has to say. Welcome to our program, Gigi. Thanks for giving us some time. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Two books in pretty quick time there. You must have been quite busy. Writing <laughs> yeah, writing. no, definitely. So, and with my co-authors as well, of course, The Great COVID Panic is written with Paul Friders and Michael Baker. And then Sanjeev Sadlock helped me with Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good. They're not my only books, but they are the, the quickest ones to be produced, definitely. And I think really they're both very much the product of some cathartic work and some, some need to express my horror and despair about what's been going on the last three years. And I feel um, happy to have been able to produce them because they voice a lot of the concerns and the kind of analysis that many people used to think was was the way we should approach uh, evaluating economic policy <laughs> or any kind the of old way. policy, right? <laughs> to look and see whether it's actually a good idea, whether it's actually helping people on net. Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to have done it. And we're still selling quite a lot. And I think I'm doing a lot of speeches and, and events around Australia to uh, to try to open people's eyes and also just give some hope to, to those people who have had their eyes open already. And I should also mention um, your best young economist of the year 2019. You have to get up and say, I'd like to thank this person, that person and mum and dad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, there was an acceptance speech. And of course, that was right before the COVID era. And uh, since then, the Economic Society hasn't yet actually put its hand towards hosting a discussion of COVID-era policies, but I'm on the New South Wales branch council for the Economic Society, so I'm, I'm sort of hopeful. I keep trying to nudge them, hey, we need to talk about this. We need to have an event that actually addresses these issues. But uh, as we, we may discuss later in the show, it's something that a lot of people really don't want to do. They don't want to evaluate the policies we've just lived through. Uh, there's a lot of pain and a lot of, uh, a lot of scars associated with that already and it's easier for a lot of people to simply try to forget yeah probably the same here and in like countries so you you said the pre-covid era and that what is up to the beginning of 2020 i suppose just the Mm -hmm. end of 2019 so that's a line in the sand right well, I mean, it is from the perspective of, uh, you know, these these draconian policies that were implemented by our governments allegedly to combat COVID, and also in respect of the crowd formation that happened in March and April of 2020. But really, many of the features of the society and the polity and the economy that 
sort of catalyzed in various ways, the reactions and uh, and dynamics of the COVID era were already gaining steam before 2019, before, before the beginning of 2020. And I talk about a lot of those in The Great COVID Panic um, and, you know, definitely have blogged about them a lot. I would refer your listeners to the Brownstone Institute website where you can, you know, download a lot of really interesting analysis of the COVID era. And they, by the way, also published The Great COVID Panic, the great Jeffrey Tucker and Brownstone Institute. So I think it's important to recognize that the COVID era happened not just out of the blue, but was was aided and abetted by many of the changes that we saw leading up to 2020, changes such as the increasing concentration of power in different industries, the reducing share of productivity of of, um, produce at any given uh, factory or a supplier that was being sent to laborers relative to the owners of capital, the increasing inequality within countries, uh, even raising levels of of corruption, uh, both in Australia and other countries, but very, very evident here in Australia. Um, you know, the, the advent of the career politician and the real stranglehold that career politicians now have over our political systems here in Australia, uh, and just many other factors that, you know, having to do with the polity and the the people. Um, distraction because of mobile phones, a very self-centered and victimhood-oriented culture. And many of these things fed right into uh, a lot of the, the damage that happened during COVID, and we were essentially ripe for the exploiting. Uh, and we were roundly exploited during that time. And so now, really, I, I feel that the job of people who recognize this is to think about reform ideas and push for them, uh, both in Australia and New Zealand and any other democratic, so-called democratic state, because what we really want is for this kind of tragedy never to befall uh, a Western country again. Yeah, that's uh, quite a list. And I'm digesting that. You mentioned that word formation, right? Did I hear that? And I think we're familiar with the concept. I think at the core of that is free-floating anxiety and a sense of meaninglessness in life, along with everything else that you mentioned there. Is that the sort of intersection point we're at? Because that's complicated, right? Well, you're, you're quoting there from Matt Desmet, who has yes, a of, of mass formation. And some other people, including Robert Malone, have gone further and said it's mass formation psychosis. I, I don't like that word psychosis to be applied particularly because that indicates implicitly that somehow it's a disorder for a human being to be caught up in what Desmet calls mass formation. Um, but the way that we talk about it in the Great COVID Panic is that a, a crowd formed, a crowd or a herd, a herd thinking, group thinking. And we've seen this happen before, and not just because of meaninglessness in life. That's <laughs> not actually the only kind of reason why you might have a herd form. The real ingredients are a great deal of fear and uncertainty and a, a kind of messaging about what is causing that fear that gives rise to a, a basically kind of religious or ideologically fanatical kind of storyline about what one must do to reduce the fear. So in the case of uh, COVID, it's pretty obvious, right? We, we were all hyped up about how dangerous the COVID virus was. And, and here are these things that we can all do to sacrifice for the virus and, you know, hopefully get a better result. I remember in 2021 writing an op-ed for one of our big papers here called Stop This Human Sacrifice, because it was like a human sacrifice. We were simply sacrificing to the god of of COVID, (laughs) hoping somehow that these sacrifices, like locking ourselves in our houses and closing our schools and stopping work and all these other things, were somehow going to deliver us from the, the threat of COVID. But this isn't the only time in human history when such a thing has happened. In my country of birth, the the Salem witch hunts are are quite a good example of the formation of a crowd. So there you had an uncertain populace with uh, these women who were doing weird things and kind of a desire to gain mastery and control over this uh, uncertainty, uh, uncertain element of their environment. And the story began to be developed that these women were possessed by the devil. And once that kind of story really takes hold and more and more people join and a crowd forms, it becomes very difficult for the individual person to resist the the lure of the crowd because membership in a crowd (laughs) delivers a lot of psychological benefits. You feel secure. You feel like you're with other people who are on the same page, you feel like you're valiantly defending something or working towards something, you're giving this sacrifice, so you feel that there is a sense of meaning, certainly, that you get out of that. But the price is that your mind is captured, your mind is hijacked 
to simply be a rationalization machine to defend the ideas and goals of a crowd on whatever day it happens to be. So one day it can be that the sky is blue, the next the sky is red. And on each of those days, your mind, if you are a crowd member, will be devoted to rationalizing why that's true. Uh, it's a very scary dynamic and, and one that I hadn't observed up front. Most of us hadn't observed in, in our lives before COVID. And so for me as a social scientist, it was a great period of learning, but also, of course, a great period of despair. Though it seems the majority were susceptible, the majority by far. That's kind of scary, isn't it? To know Definitely. that most of the people are up for that. Definitely. And it certainly is a question in my mind, what can we do to have more resistance amongst uh, the population to future potential crowd formation. Uh, and it's not obvious what what ingredients that would go into that other than, uh, you know, observing what are the kinds of people who resisted and thinking, well, maybe can we make more of those? What are the kinds of people? Well, in my book, The Great COVID Panic, we actually have uh, three characters that we tell the COVID story um, through. And one of them is named Jasmine. She's the skeptic and she's a skeptic from the very start. She's nonconformist. She thinks for herself. She's sort of never really been part of a group. She's never really thought it was important uh, to be approved of by a group. She's very secure in herself. She doesn't need group approval uh, of her ideas in order to feel worthy or in order to uh, feel that, you know, she has something to live for. And so that is certainly one protective kind of suite of traits, you might say. But there are other traits as well. There's the, the trait of really loving someone who is directly being damaged by the COVID policies and still having enough brain cells of your own left to recognize that those policies are the direct choices of leadership. And so then blaming the leadership rather than blaming the COVID virus uh, for the problem. Uh, and so that kind of deep love uh, together with, and so you see this in mothers, for example, many of the people in the resistance around the world are mothers who have seen their children harmed. And, you know, the love of a mother is, is the deepest and most, uh, most awesome of any love in the human species. And so when directed, uh, you know, in, in that way, and when there's a coupling with, with a recognition that it's the leadership decisions that have caused this pain, that can be a very powerful force. Of course, one of the issues is that now... Many people who are starting to maybe come out of the crowd and, and start to wake up and use their minds a little bit have huge incentives not to really see what has happened, partially because they did many of the things they did during the COVID era out of love. They felt that it was a loving action to support the lockdowns and keep their kids out of school. Why loving? Because they were supposedly saving lives, right? It was supposedly loving to let your mother die alone in a nursing home, supposedly, right? It was supposedly pro-social and altruistic to get the vaccines. So these kinds of decisions were made often using that same force of love. So as I've said in, in previous interviews, one of the most horrific Terrific, offensive aspects of COVID is that our own most sacred impulses of love and, and care for each other were hijacked by the COVID narrative during this time. And, and now we face a real uphill battle trying to help people to face what has really happened while somehow retaining their own self-respect and, and sense of self-dignity and not having such a psychological shock that they, that they never recover, recover from it. Okay, so the obvious question is, you mentioned the word hijacked. Was it a seized upon opportunity or are the hijackers also experiencing this phenomenon and reacting in the way, given the power they have and the influence that they have, in in the same way? Because trying to separate out, you know, motive and action from the crowd, I guess, and there seems to have been quite a strategy to induce progressively, nudge, nudge, fear, right? Well, certainly, and again, we, we tell this story in the Great COVID Panic, there were people who were extremely opportunistic during the COVID era as the panic unfolded. Um, so the two other characters, in addition to Jasmine, whom we have in the Great COVID Panic, are Jane and James. Jane is the scared member of the population, the person who was... Um, looking at all the videos and, you know, the coverage from overseas and from China, from Milan and all these pictures of, you know, people just dead on the streets and looking at other signals in social media and just, you know, seeing what was happening in stock markets. And she got so scared that she was the one really who was pressuring the politicians to lock down right prior to mid 2020 March, like in like early March 2020. The governments, even in Australia, were saying sensible things about COVID, right? That this is a kind of nasty flu if you're older or sick, but for most people, it won't be a big deal. But then 
as of, you know, sort of mid to later March, governments changed on a dime. And why did they do that? Because of the pressure from people like Jane. Now, what the other character James stands for or represents is not somebody who's swept up in a panic and scared, but rather somebody who looks at any situation he finds himself in with an eye to what can benefit him. And so he's really the person who is at the center of most of our models in economics of individual behavior, homo economicus, we call him. He's amoral, not connected to any social group, just looking for his own personal wealth maximization. And James was in companies. He was at the tops of companies. He was also in the tops of government around the world. He was looking for ways to advance himself. And indeed, some of the politicians, uh, particularly in Australia, who saw that Jane was frightened in that moment, in late March 2020, had the choice to be a James or to be a noble leader, to be a courageous and, and, and selfless leader. And the courage and selflessness would have led him to try to tamp down Jane's fear, to try to outline a reasonable and appropriate response to COVID, such as targeting any protection and, and uh, attention, our resources, social resources towards the elderly who were at risk of COVID and letting everybody else just get on with their lives. But in fact, most politicians in Australia, if not all, responded as a James. Oh, I would like to stay in power, please. How can I stay in power? Well, I must cater to the public's obvious desire to be protected from COVID, this great gargantuan threat that they are perceiving. And once we started along on that path, then there was a, a kind of path dependence. Politicians had to keep up the fiction that all of their various destructive actions were in fact protecting us from this uh, supposedly foreboding threat. So no, I, I'm not really um, particularly enamored of the, the theories that say all of this was somehow planned in advance by all the people who were involved. Sure, there were some uh, networking conventions, lots of them, in fact, before COVID. And that was one of the features of the pre-COVID era. There were these Davos meetings amongst lots of leaders around the world. And yeah, they rubbed shoulders. It was basically just a lot of networking. And people who are powerful absolutely will do deals and have agreements, you know, casual ones with other people who are powerful if they think that it will help them retain and extend their power, right? Power is a hard drug. People will do anything, anything to try to keep it and, and grow it. So certainly that happened. But judging by what politicians were saying right before the lockdowns, you know, two weeks before, the politicians were reacting to the population's fear on the ground. And uh, career politicians, you mentioned that um, designation or description earlier. Is that what a career politician does now? Well, certainly a career politician is, by definition, someone who doesn't represent anything but himself. Uh, he, he doesn't come from a profession. He doesn't, didn't have a, a quote-unquote real job. Uh, he doesn't really have a, a group outside of his political party. So he's not really representative, right? We're supposed to have representatives in parliament. Well, what, what does he represent exactly? I mean, he just represents himself and his party. And so it's it's difficult to make the argument that he's he's truly part of a democratic process. And this has been an increasing problem in democracies around the world, not just Australia. Because back in the day, you know, when, for example, when the United States was first founded, the people whom you hear about all the time, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all these guys, they had real careers. You know, they they were, you know, battle generals. They were uh, plantation owners. They were lawyers. You know, all these guys actually had professions. They had careers before they entered politics. So they were able to represent something. They knew some area of, of human endeavor and they knew the people who were involved in it. And so they had the, a very different set of incentives. So today we have these, these politicians who are essentially just part of a whole class that works on behalf of itself rather than on behalf of the population. So that's one of the reasons why some of the reforms that I have talked about, both in the Great COVID Panic and then afterwards in the blogs on Brownstone Institute site, center around trying to break the connection between those people and actual resource allocation decisions in our society. Um, and one of the ways that those networks at the moment are maintained is by the use of political, political appointments to different uh, top public service roles. So for example, the politician will appoint the, the minister of the interior or the, uh, the department of education head. Instead of having it be like that, uh, my co-authors and I have proposed that we return such choices to the people. 
So we form juries of citizens to appoint the top of the public service, the top of any organization that has a significant amount of public funding, such that we then, if we do this enough over the next few years, we'll end up with a cadre of people at the top of the machinery of state who have more incentives to represent the people and their interests than incentives to represent simply the political class and the elite and their interests. Boy, that sounds like a job. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, it's going to be a long term uh, thing, right? We have to be thinking about long run reforms that are actually going to benefit our people. We need really a restoration here in and in New Zealand and in the West as a whole, because we're, we're really very much um, on a precipice, I feel. And, and we need to step up and try to save our societies and try to rebuild them, restore what we used to have. I want to get to, you know, the plan. That's a little bit of it, but economic plan. It's more than just reshuffling the deck, isn't it? Is it kind of reinventing things? Is that what we're going to... Well, I think that there's many institutions that are now shown to be complicit and tainted by their involvement in the COVID era destruction. And what you are seeing here in Australia, and I'm sure you see it in New Zealand as well, is the creation of new institutions, um, new organizations that are over time, I'm expecting, um, the place where you're going to see new structures develop that will take the place of the institutions that exist now that failed us so badly during COVID. So in Australia, for example, we have the Australian Medical Practitioner Society and the Australian Medical Network. They have uh, been founded by doctors and other health professionals who are dismayed with what has happened in the mainstream health bodies, including APRA and the American, uh, the Australian Medical Association, AMA. And so the idea is to form your own new organization. It's a democracy. One should be able to do that. I mean, APRA over here is just a private body. So you can establish another private body. And if you attract enough doctors and medical professionals and you get the word out, you can form a, a new network, a new set of associations and, and organizational structures. So I expect that is that is what we will see. And we should be encouraging those kinds of new organizations and that kind of grassroots initiative to try to basically provide the services and goods that used to be provided by the institutions that are now so tainted, um, but instead by, uh, you know, organizations that are new and have more like the ideals of the Enlightenment and, and population help and population orientation, rather than just an orientation towards the, the maintenance of power by those who are already in power. Out of all the, the sectors involved, the medical sector, you mentioned the um, representative groups the established ones and, and new ones are sprouting up. But out of all the groups, the sector you'd expect most to uphold the medical side of it, the ethics, the rights, would be the doctors' groups, the representation groups. But they weren't there. In fact, they played hardball. Do no harm from everything I've read is, you know, one of the first things you have drummed into your medical school. And I'm curious, do you have any thoughts about how that sector behaved and why they dispensed really their core positioning statements, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that just like many other sectors in the population, the doctors were captured by the narrative, and they truly believed, many of them, that what they were doing was, in fact, helping people. They, yeah, but they, the doctors, they should know, right? They should have a bit of nous about well, you should you say should, but, you know, the reality is that doctors rely on peer-reviewed medical literature very heavily. And during this period, we've seen that the peer-reviewed medical literature is essentially just, a, you know, has become a propaganda machine in and of its own right. Um, and so you were getting only the, those published studies that were approved of by the various different moneyed parties that had financial incentives to promote whatever the mainstream narrative was. So lock down and wait for a vaccine. I mean, even the maker of ivermectin, Merck, early on in the COVID madness was disparaging about its potential in treating COVID. Now, why is that? Because ivermectin is off, off the, um, you know, the, the, the patent. So you can get it quite cheaply. <laughs> and so it's not going to make much money for Merck. So follow the money, follow the money, and then try again, following the money to try to understand what happened during this period. And doctors are very much, you know, they're, they're people just like we are. And if they're told that by their medical society, this is the way to go, we've got the, the data, we've got the evidence, they're, they're going to follow that for the most part. Most of them will. Now, some doctors will have opted out because of what they saw with their own eyes directly and they just couldn't deny right in their practices and that certainly did happen and that's that's a source of some of the people who have woken up or and are now part of these these alternative uh, resistance and restoration groups 
But many doctors just didn't put two and two together or haven't, haven't, you know, put the pieces together, just like many people in the population haven't put the pieces together, right? I mean, for you and me, it may be absolutely bleeding obvious that these policies have been massively destructive. But for many people who have strong psychological incentives not to see that, because they themselves went along with a narrative for years, and they themselves, therefore, are kind of complicit. They will use their big brains, because we are homo sapiens sapiens, they will use their big brains to rationalize and justify and excuse why the mainstream narrative actually was correct. And only in hindsight could we possibly know that maybe some mistakes were made. Right? So that's what I expect will end up being the, the, the main narrative now for a little while until such time as the societies actually develop the, the courage to face what happened. And then, and that's probably going to be five years from now anyway, and at that point, we're going to need to have a system for um, restoring trust and, and facing what what actually happened, acknowledging the pain, uh, courting the possibility of some apologies and some uh, some some real, you know, pain in the other direction. So uh, a little bit of justice would be nice. Now, we never in, in history have seen a, a sort of an example of this kind of global destruction where there has been true justice. And I don't really expect full justice to be meted out. And in most cases in history, you see that the people who were the victims of such uh, horrific destruction end up having to just pick themselves up in the corner and go on. But I do hope for at least some justice. And I've said recently on a podcast with John Anderson and, and Jay Bhattacharya that I hope, I do expect that and hope that we will see some of the CEOs of Pfizer um, and, and other drug companies serve some jail time for what's happened. Yeah. And before we get on to the economics, and I want to reference uh, an appearance you made on Q&A ABC recently, um, then there's the media and then social media, and social media we've found out now through the Twitter files, et cetera, um, you know, had a direct line to government intelligence um, agencies. Uh, I guess it was the same here, the same in Australia, all around, which was focused on maintaining that narrative. Do you think that was as a result of thinking that you're not wrong or because that that's again suspending completely freedom of speech uh, which is again should have the highest bar ever yeah you know? sure so i mean one can say should until one's blue in the face but i know i'm saying should all the time yeah the, the media is simply a, a puppet now and, and basically uh for sale for the highest bidder the reason why the media is so important of course is that it's it's uh the channel in the modern age for forming people's beliefs about the world they live in there's so much information out there all the time. People have to just be, they're, they're, they're deluged with, with information. They need some kind of distillation mechanism. And the distillation mechanism they often use is the, the media. They just go to find whatever messages are on the media. And because that messaging then forms their view of the world and makes them then support or fail to support various different policies, the people who are making the policies have a huge incentive to send messages that are slanted in their favor. And, and companies do as well, right? So any company that stands to earn money from a particular view of the world that the population may hold will, of course, wish to put pressure on the media, and they will uh, simply offer money for various and other kinds of favors for various messages to be taken off or included or slanted or whatever. So you should definitely see most mainstream media today as, as simply a bought service. Um, and the creation of one's own view of the world should not be based on what the mainstream media, media says, because that is not an unbiased or in any sense objective or balanced or um, uh, reasonable view of, of the way the world actually works. Okay, so speaking of mainstream media, uh, I think it was on March 14th, you're on the ABC Q&A show. I've watched a few of those over the time. They can be quite entertaining. Uh, they come from a particular, I guess, view being ABC. We've got our um, RNZ and TVNZ here, the um, kind of the equivalents. There you were responding to a question from an audience member, a young woman, Bella Mitchell Sears was her name, and she said she could no longer afford to go to university due to the rising cost of living. Um, you picked up on that question. I think she might have specifically asked you, and then you sort of kind of went through why that is, and you were, my impression was you were the only person raising uh, in that panel raising the the full spectrum of the issues let's say um tell us about what happened there and i mean you, you seem to be about the only holdout there on the stage really 
<laughs> yeah, well, that that wasn't the first time. So I think I've been on ABC Q&A about five times now. And, and each time, this is all during the COVID era, each time I've said basically the same thing in, in, in different language uh, and with respect to different uh, concerns of that particular moment in the in the saga. So the the key issue uh, in March, I think it was March 13th when I was on, was indeed that we have had a huge increase in the cost of living. And it's been very palpable for Australian households as our RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, has ratcheted up the cash rate and that's been filtering through to mortgages and it still hasn't fully filtered through. We've still got people uh, you know, continuing to see their, their payments go up and up and up and by huge amounts, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars per year for some families. Um, you know, only about 30% or so of Australian families actually do have a mortgage on which this kind of money is due, but still, that's a large chunk of the uh, the consumer public. So, so I knew that that was probably going to come up, <laughs> and uh, and I saw it as my job to point out the obvious fact that if you uh, go through several years uh, of economic management in which you're keeping interest rates very low and you're creating lots of money and you're putting a pause on a lot of economic activity, then you're probably going to end up with a lot more money floating around in the system than you really need, which is the definition of inflationary conditions. Um, and so we're going to have the, the fruits of that. And, and that is what we have, not only in a, in a monetary sense, but also in a real sense, because the pausing of the economy was what caused the uh, supply chain snarls, as they are, I think, referred to in the mainstream media, the destruction of, of productive links between upstream and downstream suppliers and suppliers and wholesalers, wholesalers, retailers, retailers and cons consumers. All of these links in normal times go unobserved. They're pretty much invisible, but they're extremely important to the operation of a healthy economy. So when you destroy them, or threaten them by simply telling everybody they've got to down tools, stop work, and then leave people like that for months and months and, and have an uncertainty over everybody's head that, oh, well, we're not sure this might go on for even longer, or maybe it's open up, now it's closed, open up, closed, open, closed up, now it's open in your region, it's open up, now it's closed. It's a ridiculous situation for businesses to be in. So they are, of course, going to make decisions that are in, in what they hope are in their best interest, which often means changing industries, change, you know, closing businesses, um, trying something different to, to make a make your you know livelihood. And so you're going to change the economy. And it takes a long time for links to be reformed uh, and to, to recover that healthy economic um, situation where you have lots of highly productive but invisible links between uh, upstream downstream suppliers and all the other people in the economy. So we are still seeing higher real costs of getting goods to people because of what we did during the COVID era. So there's there's the monetary side and there's the, the real side. And all of it is, is bad for uh, our current cost of living. And mind you, that's not the only thing that it's bad for. We've also accumulated uh, hundreds of billions of dollars more debt and that debt will have to be paid off at some point in the future. And those payouts will crowd out other line items that the government would otherwise be spending on. And that's everything from roads to hospitals to education, anything that helps people live longer and happier lives. So we have directly damaged the lives of our children by these ridiculous policies that did not create any benefit. In fact, in my book with Sanjeev Sablock, Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? We estimate that the value of the costs of lockdowns was at a minimum minimum 68 times the value of any benefits they could possibly have delivered. So 68. that's a big number. Yeah. 68. That is a big number. Pretty big number. Okay. Well, um, you know, like I said, the the other people on the stage with you weren't going where you were going. You'd be used to that now, probably. Very much so. But I'm not, I don't mind. I mean, you know, I always say yes when the ABC Q&A people ask me to be on because I feel it's an opportunity to give voice to the, you know, probably hopefully increasing share of the Australian population who've smelled a rat with the COVID policies and actually want to hold the, the people who made these disastrous decisions to account. Okay, so what's the, the path out then, considering there could be years of, of uh, well, damage to deal with? How long is it going to take? A generation's going to be, you know, worse off than others for a while. And what, what would the plan be if it was up to you? So 
Speak to well, that, please. So certainly, I think that the first number one thing to recognize is that governments and bureaucracies are the culprits, the main culprits, and actually pushing the button on these decisions. As much as the media were also a problem and the population fear was a problem, the people who actually made the decisions are people who essentially have not yet been held accountable for them. So, and, and you're seeing that start to percolate through the consciousness here in Australia with increasing calls for a royal commission, for example. I don't think a royal commission will really achieve much, but it's certainly something we must do because it's in the tradition of Australia to investigate in that way when something is perceived to be, um, you know, problematic. Um, well, I, I just say that we've got a Royal Commission that's been promised here, but the thing about that is its terms of reference avoid basically the very crucial questions and aspects. Yep. So, so you know, as you as you just indicated, for that reason, and there's other reasons too, I don't expect a lot of actual progress from a royal commission, but at least it would be a signal that the Australian population are at a point where they're ready to actually consider reforms. And then I think really it's number one to get the government to reduce its span of influence. It's just completely gone overboard and needs to be brought back into its lane. So government should be about supporting populations and businesses to go about their business and provide some safety nets where necessary, but not the, the extent of the overreach. And we should have pledges from our governments uh, around the, the West that they will never engage in these kinds of uh, draconian restrictions of freedom ever again. Getting that kind of commitment is going to be difficult when all the politicians are, you know, career politicians who are not interested in limiting their own power. Nobody who's been in power is ever interested in that. And for that reason, um, I do think it's possible that we'll have some violence, even in the West. Uh, you're certainly seeing violence now in the developing world. Um, I hope we can avoid that in the Antipodes, but I, I'm not 100% confident we can. This is why I have proposed the citizen juries with my co-authors, um, because it would be a solution to return some power to the people gradually as we appoint more and more individuals to top roles in the public service. Um, we would get more and more decisions made more on our behalf rather than on the behalf of the elites. And so there might be a possibility, there might be enough political will to actually get that passed. Um, but, you know, that's a slow process. As I say, I expect there's going to be more local organizations to do various things, whether it's provide health, um, which at the moment, you know, health insurance and the whole health sector is basically oriented more towards keeping people sick uh, and dependent upon the, the, the latest production of the biopharmaceutical complex. So what we really need is a, an actual health system, a system of keeping people as healthy as possible. And so I've had some conversations here with some of our groups that are thinking about having alternative um, doctor registration and certification processes and alternative uh, health insurance systems where what would be insured would include things like Chinese traditional medicine or massage therapy, but not the latest and greatest supposedly uh, biopharmaceutical pill. Um, so, you know, that kind of change in the direction of actual health. And certainly there's a huge piece in education uh, where we need to get people activated again and realize that they themselves, the guy on the street, has a responsibility for a continual vigilance and oversight of people who hold power in his society. You can't just give power to people and then turn your eye away. This is what happens when you do that, what we've just lived through. So we must try to reactivate people. And how do you do that? Well, you point out the pain, you point out the destruction, and it has to get pretty bad for people to really you know, be budged out of their inertia and their kind of apathy. Certainly we have that in us. Australia, big time. There's less of it in the US, my other country. So, you know, I see a little bit more progress in those areas. I think that legally, we're going to eventually see some lawsuits to, um, to, to, you know, try to seek damages for some of the, the horrific decisions that have happened, including the vaccines, by the way. Uh, but that's going to be a while in the future. But certainly, if people are interested in joining uh, legal the legal resistance and restoration, I think uh, that would be another thing to to consider. Uh, and in general, I think it's a it's a time to focus on community strength and doing what you can in your patch to open people's eyes because people do not just wake up on mass; they wake up slowly person by person from a kind of crowd dynamic like we've seen during COVID. So you can do you, your part by having conversations, small ones at the supermarket, meet people where they are, pick up on, you know, oh, why do you think that? Or what makes you believe in, you know, that that happened? You know, why would you want to support that? What's your, what's your reasoning? Just ask them respectfully and try to engage them, try to give them resources to try to open their minds. Um, it's a very slow process and this is why it's going to take years. And we are going to have, as you mentioned, a generation of children who have been held back 
back and horrifically hurt by some of these policies. Some of the early studies now of, of the cohort of people who were born during COVID are showing humongous drops in IQ, like a standard deviation drop in IQ. And that's just IQ. That's not you know soft skills, empathy, the kinds of things that actually make for a good person. So I'm expecting a lot more sociopathy psychopathy uh, and, and general uh, learning disability in that cohort of kids. Those, those people have been permanently damaged, I'm afraid. And you can't make up some of that kind of loss uh, later in life because the, the window uh, of zero to three is precious and, and um, you know, doesn't, doesn't recur. So there's just a huge amount of damage to recover from. I don't think we've ever seen this much damage, certainly not in peacetime uh, in Australia and not in New Zealand either. So um, you know, the, the task lies ahead for us to collectively figure out how to rebuild our society. As people wake up, they could become angry. Absolutely, they should. And this is a problem if, if the anger gets too out of control, right? If you start having the vindictive, angry young men scenario um, too strongly and this kind of lust for revenge, that's where bloodshed can happen. So, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen because that can lead, that's hard to stop Stop once it starts, right? It can lead to- I, I was going to mention, you know, the violence thing because you mentioned just before, and that's what you know, people like us or me or whoever worry about Definitely. this could this could happen. And if you're a parent and your kid has been in those metrics that you mentioned affected negatively, you're not going to forgive too easily about that. In fact, that's the worst thing that that could happen to your family, actually, apart from you know injuries and and deaths. Um, how likely is it? Do you think that there could be some you know, um, well, let's use the word violence. Well, I think that there is a stronger chance of violence in Europe than in the Antipodes, mainly because we're just much more placid populations here in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and we've not really seen much violence in the history of these uh, of our countries compared to some of the, the histories. In yeah, Europe. but this is different too, isn't it? This is, it is but, like uh, a but, nuclear... Yeah, if, you're, if you're ranking oh. the likelihood of violence, you know, the likelihood is higher yeah, in Europe. No. Yeah, yeah, but of course, yeah. you're right, it's different. So we are in uncharted territory, so I'm not going to say it's impossible. Um, you know, I, I do think that the, the main... I would say that the, the likelihood that... Somehow, you know, this all doesn't happen, that we don't get a, a, a waking up and a, a kind of recognition of what's really happened is reasonably low because the... Uh, I mean, the game is kind of up already for the elites in the sense that they've they've shown their hands. I mean, the Matt Hancock files are just excoriating, yeah. right? Um, and there's, there's more and more stupid mistakes that are being made by the elite in recent months. And there are just more and more obvious signals that what was done was for political reasons, not for health reasons. So I think we will have a reckoning. Um, and I also think that the main issue that will continue to fuel the resistance and restoration movement will actually be the vaccine damage issue um, rather than the lockdown issue, because the vaccines, you know, you can't unvaccinate a person. <laughs> and and people now kind of are cognizant of the fact that this poison remains in their system, potentially doing ongoing damage. And it looks now from the data that something like 10 percent of women who would otherwise have had a healthy child uh, had a, you know, a, a miscarried child because of being vaccinated. And that's a huge number of kids right and so that's that kind of damage to your 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 pregnant women and your children um and ongoing damage to yourself that you can't immediately undo that's that's a very powerful driver of course i hope that there will be um treatments and protocols developed that are very effective in reversing the damage of the vaccines but um you know they're, they're not yet being really widely advertised there are a few protocols like that that hopefully your audience members will, will be able to be directed to but um, you know, I hope that more of those happen and that they get pushed out more because, uh, you know, there has been just a horrific human um, body count uh, attributable to these vaccines. So, you know, I think that we will win, basically, is what, I, what I'm trying to say, is that there are signals that I just we're not going to be able to, to, to really fully succeed in memory holding this whole time. Um, and I, of course, like you, I hope that, it, that the win happens not with bloodshed, but with reasoned discussion and, uh, and, and serious reform that involves many diverse voices from across our societies. Well, I don't know where we're at because in saying all that, we still have our top health officials and politicians. Just uh, two weeks ago, our Prime Minister and Minister of Health were on TV News getting their new vaccine, their new booster. We've got the former um, Director General of Health recommending it. We've got um, the leading epidemiologist saying, hurry up, hurry up, the fourth wave's coming, you need to do this, and they're still pushing masks. Yeah. So, you know, 
<laughs> doesn't yeah, seem like we've got think, anywhere. I know, I know. But New Zealand is behind, just like Australia is behind the, the other countries in the West. Yeah, right? but they hear the news. Yeah, Gigi, but, they know but, what's going on. They talk to their the politicians. Sure, the politicians do, but they again. What did I say before? Anybody in power will do basically anything to stay in power, and at the moment, they they are still pushing this narrative because the New Zealand people are allowing it. <laughs> the New Zealand people are not pushing back that, enough. That's a good point. On mass, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if the people start to rebel, then there's the writing is on the wall for the politicians. There's 99% of us, and only one percent of them. Right. So so the key thing is to wake up people in the population. That's why I say that the the audience members job should be thought of. I mean, what can they do? They can locally try to have conversations with people on the street, your neighbors, people at your church, whoever, to try to wake them up to what is happening and to resist these attempts at more power and more, you know, solidification and, and consolidation of the elite's position in our in our societies, because they have betrayed us. They have created destruction and they should be taken out of power permanently. Um, and you see in, in Europe, several countries are already saying that the vaccine is not a good idea, right? They're no longer recommending the vaccine. So that will filter through eventually to the antipodes, but we're always a few years behind, right? So it may be another year or two that we continue to see. Well, if it's not reported and it's not in the media, then no one's going to know. That's, well, this is where your radio station comes into the... Well, that's right. That's right. Phone, right, and other independent media. So I just wish you all of the best best luck in trying to penetrate the channels and, and get into people's homes with these kinds of messages because this is what they need to hear. And these are not, you know, we aren't people who are, you know, crazy conspiracy, tinfoil hat theorists, whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put on us. We are free-thinking people, free-thinking good people who are genuinely afraid for the, the the fate of the West and certainly the fate of our societies and really want to rebuild in a way that will preserve and protect uh, our lives. And, and that's what we're on about. So we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't believe in that stuff. And, you know, there is sense-making, much more sense-making in the resistance and restoration movements than there is in mainstream media. And people just need to open their minds to that now and uh, and, and try to face the very painful truth. Could I ask you about your experience with these sort of like World Economic Forum types? I know you haven't been to Davos. Yeah. You probably couldn't afford the private jet, I suppose. <laughs> well, I've never been I've never been invited, but I was invited twice in a row to um, something that they call the ADC Forum Leadership Retreat in Brisbane. Hmm. Um, ADC stands for Australian Davos Connection. Um, and I went, you know, because why not? I want to observe what this stuff is like, right? And it's it's an opportunity to speak my mind. And I, both times, it's, these were two years in a row, I think maybe 20, what was it, 2020 and 2021, or maybe 21 and 22, something like that. And and both times I, I was able to speak perfectly freely on the panel that I was on, and uh, and I was able to observe the other people there. Now, this is, mind you, a conference where the registration fee is $8,000. Um, there's a spousal registration fee of $5,000. And they fly in all these, you know, fancy pants people to give keynote addresses on space and AI and, you know, this sort of stuff to, to wow all of the uh, attendees. And the main job of the conference organizers, I think, as they see it, is to give the attendees a good time, make them feel as though they are able to solve the world's problems, um, basically flatter them in every way possible, and allow them space to connect with other powerful people and rich people. And so it feels like an old boys club kind of school reunion on steroids. That's basically what it feels like. Um, And you got all these guys who are owning like, you know, newspaper companies or, you know, big, huge property developers or, you know, a huge empire in some other industry. And, you know, they're all kind of slapping each other on the back and, you know, hail fellow good, you know, well met. And, you know, oh, did you know about the such and such? Oh, take my card and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it is just like a networking convention. Right. And so that's basically what I think is going on at Davos as well, for the most part. Now, over the last 10, 20 years, probably 15 years or so, is the creation of this kind of globalist network. Now, Klaus Schwab himself is just a trumped-up conference organizer, but he mans the clubhouse. He puts together the clubhouse. And so these rich people come there because that's just where they've coordinated on to come and, and see what kind of deals can be struck in order to try to preserve their power. So, yeah, that's that's just a natural thing that people in power will do. Remember, power is a hard drug. People throughout history have, have lied, cheated, killed their own family to stay in power. So do not be surprised when somebody in power finds ways to try to retain that power and that includes making deals with other people so if you call that a conspiracy fine or just call it a collaboration or a collusion or whatever you want to call it um, people will take opportunities as they can uh, to maintain their power so that is definitely what's happened and the powerful now 
who are seeing some of the writing on the wall with the Matt Hancock files and, you know, the CDC admitting that it, it just lied blatantly to people um, about about tracking the, the adverse events of vaccines and, and these other kinds of stupid mistakes. Those powerful people who are really smart are going to stop going to Davos because they are going to want to distance themselves slowly from that group of the elite that they know are eventually going to be circled by the rest of the world who have realized the rest of the West who have realized that those are the people who have betrayed us. So be interesting to see who, that's how I see. Be interesting yeah. to see who the early dropouts will be from that. So just to wind up, I guess the you know the the real practical stuff for listeners right now dealing with you know, mortgages going up, and like you say, thousands of extra dollars a year, tens of thousands for some. Yep. Um, you know, eggs are $12 a dozen now. I keep banging on about that. But, you know, that's how you know. They used to be six or seven, and and so it goes. Uh, inflation, the Reserve Bank here is uh, upping the official cash rate on a regular basis more than ever. You know, the target is, I think, one and a half to two percent. Normally, we're at seven, just on seven percent at the moment, maybe a little under the next forecast, and there's another rise to come. So how long do you think this will go on? Is it going to stay brutal for a while? People need to plan. They need to decide what the – and they can only take so much. Is this something that will be over in a couple of years, or is this just going to keep on the pressure on and and sort of be unrelenting for a period? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, and economists have a reputation for predicting nine out of the last five recessions, right? So, so we're not exactly uh, renowned. Okay, with that in mind, though. Yeah. <laughs> With that in mind, I, I don't think that it's going to resolve in the next year. I think we are going to continue to see reasonably high inflation. But um, I do think that the RBA over here, like your Reserve Bank as well, has been ratcheting up interest rates uh, and keeping a very close eye on lots of the different markets and will probably continue to ratchet them up a bit more. Um, but probably, you know, we're not going to get, hopefully, we're not going to get the kind of skyrocketing inflation rates that we saw, for example, in South America during the South American crises where you'd have to have a whole wheelbarrow full of money just to buy a stick of butter, right? I don't see that happening. Um, but, you know, you have not just the monetary side, but also the real side, the supply chain stuff to get sorted out. And that's that's still an issue for some people. And you see shortages still of, of some kinds of goods. And the economy basically just hasn't been undisrupted yet. And the, the real issue is that there's still this uncertainty hanging over everybody's shoulders. We haven't changed any of the institutions that got us into this mess, right? So tomorrow, the next big, you know, scary virus could be announced. And with enough drumming up in the media, we could go right back into the same kind of delusional, stupid policies, right? And so that's the thing that for me is most of of a kind of a wild card, because if we don't change the institutions, we're still vulnerable. If we don't get any pledge or recognition from the government that this was wrong, you know, then then we are at risk of falling right down that, you know, same rabbit hole. And that just will create more pain, right? And so we're in a kind of constant cycle. So, I, you know, I also think, though, that a good a positive aspect, a silver lining, is that whenever governments really mishandle something for a long time, they start losing their populations. People start leaving, right? And you've seen that in the U.S. You've seen people leaving from California, from New York, down to Texas and Florida. You will see that in the Antipodes as well. Well, it's happening here. It's happening here. Well, They're going to Australia. People are going to Australia, and and even from Australia, people are leaving. My own son has has gone to the U.S., um, and you know this is a natural a natural sort of decision for young, ambitious, energetic people who are just sick of being told what to do by patronizing government governance. You know who, who that are obviously not in their acting in their own best interest. So so yeah, I think that that will be a, a kind of writing on the wall for for governments in the Antipodes. If they really start losing so much population, they will have to eventually face the fact that their own power will be decreased by virtue of the fact that the population will be smaller. Gigi Foster, US-born academic and economist. Thank you for spending some time with us on our radio stations. Really interesting to hear what you had to say. We appreciate that. My great pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me on. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.